Hello, welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter AudioCast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and it's a beautiful day today. This podcast is volume 13, issue number 49, which corresponds to the week of November 20, 2023. And we're going to talk about RSV, we're going to do a mini literature review, and then we're going to have a third part on Thanksgiving. So, hope everyone's well. Settle in. Let's have a nice little conversation here today. I look forward to... uh, talking about RSV. Why do we care about RSV? Well, a lot of reasons, actually. Um, It's a big deal for little kids, and it's actually becoming a problem for the elderly who have risk for compromised health when it relates to lungs and infectious viral surveillance. So, you know, last week we talked about COVID. This week is RSV. Well, what is RSV? It's a 150 nanometer RNA virus that comes from human orthopneumovirus family that circulates in the winter primarily. Young children and infants infected with RSV mostly have upper respiratory tract symptoms, but there's a subset that develop lower respiratory tract symptoms that we call bronchiolitis, which is the primary infection down in the lungs. It is the most common reason for hospitalization of infants between zero and six months of age. Bronchiolitis appears as a wheezy, cough-centric illness that rarely may progress to increased respiratory effort noted by wheezing. Rals, which are what we call lung crackles, which sound like somebody ste- sounds like someone is stepping on leaves. And then chest wall rib retractions, grunting, fast breathing, nasal flaring, and eventually respiratory hypoxia or low oxygen state. If it persists like this for a long period of time, the event can rarely lead to respiratory collapse and death. And that usually happens in premature children or kids with really immunocompromised states. Annually, roughly 150 children under the age of five years dies from RSV in the United States. Most of these children are as stated premature births and have cardiopulmonary diseases. Term healthy children rarely, if ever, succumb to RSV in a serious way. A recent study of German infants and children hospitalized with RSV identified these risk factors. Age, less than six months of age, birth between 28 and 37 weeks gestation, congenital defects, perinatal respiratory and cardiovascular disorders, and various other comorbidities as significant risk factors for ICU admission and death. We see tons of cases of RSV annually and rarely see a severe outcome beyond hospitalization and recovery. A real consequence of RSV exposure is the increased incidence of asthma in children significantly infected with RSV. Thus, it is a virus with significant consequence long-term for those in that population. The immunobiology of RSV susceptibility is becoming more clear as the years pass. Individuals with an immune polarity toward innate adaptive T helper cell type 2, which is the parasite-fighting type of T cell skewing, which is now primarily caused by standard American-type diets, endocrine-disrupting chemicals like BPA and phthalates, pollution, and microbiome alterations, are at much higher risk of disease. The lung and the intestinal microbiome of an infant is primarily driven by maternal health, delivery route, feeding route, age at delivery, and chemical exposures, including peri and postnatal antibiotics. Therefore, as always, we have to go upstream and ask ourselves the question, how do we really prevent RSV from affecting so many children? My answer is prevent preterm birth first and foremost, and prevent maternal Th2 skewing of immune health. These are not simple realities, and they are certainly not being discussed in primary obstetrical care and medical science news. Prevention is always key. If we cannot convince society to focus on prevention naturally, 
then things invariably default to medicine. Thus, in the absence of home-based prevention, we shift the pharmaceutical-based prevention for a child as a measure of help. So, we have a new medicine that's just come on the market. It's called nursevimimab. Say that 10 times. It's a human monoclonal antibody that has one change in the YTE motif of the RSV antibody that is not naturally found in humans. The antibody circulates in the body for four to six months, allowing it to bind, target, and kill RSV viruses that present to the body, preventing the disease, saving lives. Efficacy appears to be strong based on trial data. The company that's making it, Sanofi, received FDA approval for this drug after completing clinical trials in children. The data is available to review. So I did. The studies were completed in classic double-blind placebo-controlled methodology. The Melody study has a primary cohort enrolling 1,490 healthy late preterm and term infants with 994 participating assigned to receive a single dose of nursevimab and 496 participants assigned to receive placebo. So a two-to-one skewing. The second study, the Medley study, was a trial that evaluated the safety and pharmacokinetics of nursevimab in infants with congenital heart disease, chronic lung disease, and prematurity. This was a phase 2-3 randomized double-blind blind controlled trial with palivizumab, which is the drug that's been around for a long time for RSV. They enrolled 925 infants. There were 310 participants assigned in the congenital heart disease, chronic lung disease cohort, and 615 assigned to the preterm cohort. And a third study called Harmony, a randomized, open-labeled, parallel two-arm study that compared a single dose of nursevimab to no intervention at all, or what we call standard of care, for the prevention of hospitalization due to RSV-related lower respiratory tract infection in infants born greater than 29 weeks, gestational age, entering their first RSV season. 8,058 infants were randomized, 4,037 received one intramuscular injection of nursevimab, while the other 4,021 received nothing. So, those are the three studies. The studies note equal side effects between placebo and active intervention arms. However, the company's PharmD representative that I have been conversing with has not answered the main question that I am concerned about on drug-associated antibodies that were found in 6% of the actively treated patients. What this means is that for every 100 infants given the monoclonal antibody drug, 6 will develop an antibody against the drug. What is the significance of this? They have no idea. My concern is molecular mimicry. Is this protein structure of this drug similar in any way to any human protein structure in the body? If so, could this lead to an issue down the road? No idea yet, as the studies were short-lived. The second concern that I have, and that I'm waiting for an answer on, is this. Does this drug have an anaphylaxis risk like many of the monoclonal antibody drugs that we know that exist in society now? The risk of anaphylaxis is one to two per 1,000 patients with a humanized monoclonal antibody drug. This has to be weighed against the risk of death from RSV, which is one per 100,000 infected for all infants. This drug has one alteration, making it less likely to cause an effect per the company. Anaphylaxis is due to the immunogenic properties of the monoclonal antibody's protein component. Fully human monoclonal antibodies, which consist of 99% human components, are associated with a lower risk of anaphylaxis compared to humanized monoclonal antibodies, which carry up to 10% of non-human elements. Every dose contains 50 milligrams of nursevimab in 0.5 milliliter of liquid. 
The excipients are the other products are L-histidine, L-histidine hydrochloride, L-arginine hydrochloride, sucrose, polysorbate 80, and water. Don't like polysorbate 80. It's preservative and rarely potential trigger of allergy. It's also an irritant to the gut microbiome. But it's got to be in a small volume, so probably not a big deal, but not sure. Let us say that when they really roll out this medicine in 100,000 babies and that two kids die of anaphylaxis from this treatment, which is worse, the disease or the treatment? This remains to be seen as the volume treated is a fraction of the amount needed to see a signal of safety. Lots of questions, not enough answers for me to be comfortable yet with this therapy unless the patient is in question is very high risk as defined by the CDC. You know, if you have severe cardiovascular disease, severe pulmonary disease, probably is worth taking the risk. This hypothetical risk may be worth it for these children. As always, just my opinion, the science, and not a recommendation for you guys. You guys have to choose your path based on the science and based on talking to your own provider and neonatologist or whoever you're working with regarding your child. The to-do in avoiding preterm delivery and TH2 skewing, reducing total risk of RSV in an infant, is as follows. Avoid C-sections. Breastfeed for a year. Eat a whole food 30 lifestyle diet, like a whole 30 diet, with no processed foods. Especially avoid all forms of fructose in liquid or food processing forms. Huge risk for preeclampsia and preterm birth. Listen to podcast number 50 with Rick Johnson discussing the cause of preeclampsia and premature birth. Avoid all chemicals while pregnant, including and especially maternal skin and hair products that have endocrine-disrupting chemicals in them. Go to ewg.org to learn more. Pregnant women should consult a provider about the right prenatal supplements to take to support optimal health. Listen to podcast number 48 with Leslie Stone on this topic. Exercise mildly daily while pregnant to enhance glycemic control. Meditate, pray, stay positive, work hard on controlling your thoughts. All right, section two. Number one, a new paper in the journal MedRxiv, we see the following, quote, the study included 4,102,000 enrollees aged six months to 17 years. 13 of 15 outcomes sequentially tested did not meet the threshold for statistical signal. In the primary analysis, myocarditis and pericarditis signals were detected following BNT162B2 vaccine in children aged 12 to 17 years old, and seizure convulsion signals were detected following vaccination with BNT162B2 and mRNA1273 in children aged 2 to 4 years. However, in a post-hoc sensitivity analysis, seizures convulsion signal was sensitive to background rate selection and was not observed when 2000 22 background rates were selected instead of 2020 rates. End quote. That comes from who at all 2023. Looking closer at this data, there is a clear seizure signal in young children with the mRNA vaccines. They noted eight seizures in one million doses given. The bigger issue for me is that six of the eight seizure cases were not related to fever. That is not good. Again, the signal is not huge, but it is real for the six children that have a febrile seizure. Is this the beginning of epilepsy for them? Time will tell. The bigger issue remains, what is the benefit of the vaccine now in the Omicron era to warrant the risk-taking in children? Not sure. Stuff for you to look at and think about. Number two, from a study looking at the dementia risk in almost 2 million Danish individuals following anti-acid drug use. Quote, during the follow-up, there were 99,384 all-cause dementia incidences. Incidence ratio rate of dementia with PPI use compared to never use, was 1.36 for 60 to 69-year-olds, 1.06 for 80 to 89-year-olds, and 1.12 for 70 to 79-year-olds. 
Longer treatment duration yield an increasing IRRs, or incidence rate ratios. For cases below 90 years, increased dementia rate was observed regardless of treatment initiation up to greater than 15 years before diagnosis. And quote, Purhadi, P-O-U-R-H-A-D-I et al. in Alzheimer's Dementia Journal. So for me, the tea leaves here are that medicine is not the problem. It is a symptom of the medical therapy model of treating the symptom and not the root cause. If you block the pain from gastric reflux, you take away the symptom but not the problem. It is a false sense of health. Thus, in this case, the use of these medicines is associated with dementia due to the true reason of the problem. Most of the time, it's diet-induced inflammation and cellular damage. Number three, California and Europe have decided to ban red dye number three, potassium bromate, brominated vegetable oil, and polyproparabens. Thank God. It's finally seeing somebody do this. There are so many more petroleum-based and toxic chemicals in our food supply that we need to get out, but this is a beginning. It's the first shot over the bow to the food industry. Time to remove all synthetic additives in food, including emulsifiers, dyes, and so much more. Section 3. Thanksgiving is a very special time to be thankful for living in America. It is especially necessary this year as we witness division in many parts of the world with military conflict. We still reside in a country that generally honors free speech, although that is sorely being tested. The daily modern national media outlets are more interested in ratings than responsible, positive, unbiased, and accurate journalism, inflaming both sides equally like a well-seasoned pharmaceutical lobbyist. They are pushing their polarized agendas on us, even though we are mostly modern in our beliefs and hopeful of peace and happiness. During this time, we can move toward a thankful reality because we still live in the best country in the world, despite the craziness. And I agree, that is a bit nuts now, and has been for a minute. Thanksgiving is a time to celebrate the gifts of the harvest, which in modern times is economically viable household where Maslow's hierarchy of needs are met and we are left to achieve goals that we have set. We are not talking about wealth here. We are simply talking about food, shelter, safety, and a job. The vast majority of Americans have these things. Ideally, we all would have them and things would be utopian. In comparison to the greater world, however, we are so much to be thankful for. For example, over one in every four humans living in sub-Saharan Africa has less than $2 a day in their pocket. Many places in the world are hopeful, but unlucky enough to not have food on the table daily. The early English settlers celebrated community with Native Americans in a graceful, grateful ceremony events. We need to get back to celebrating our community, our diversity, our luck of being born in America like myself or being accepted as a refugee like my parents. A very large majority of us are direct descendants of an immigrant family. We all have a reason to be grateful every day for our existence. We never know what will befall us tomorrow. What will we do if you knew that you would die tomorrow or be significantly hurt? Would you have the fight with your spouse? Would you yell at your child? Would you go to bed without that one hug or kiss? Would you do many things that you later regret? It's truly time for us to be grateful Americans every day, every minute, and frankly every second. Hug your kids. Love them, feed them, teach them positive beliefs over all negativity. Take this time to pray for the suffering, the hungry, the wounded, the needy. But of all, be grateful for what you have and show your gratefulness as you walk around the world. Song of the Week, River by Joni Mitchell. And this would be a moment to say Happy Thanksgiving. I'm grateful for each and every one of you who show up be the best versions of yourself every day. And as always, hug those kids.
The information provided in this audio-casted newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and it does not and should not be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This audio-casted newsletter does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.